Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like more of Walter's music, thank you, Devin Dial, for managing WPVM FM in Asheville and Robin Collier for holding KCEI together and all that you do in Taos. We really, really appreciate it. You can always reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to remind you, we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, you can look at imaginativestorm.com and that's really a great place to start. So today I have a guest whom I've never met in person, or at least I'm not sure if we have met in person. And the reason I say that is because Asia Sampson is part of the Global Poetry Slam Spoken Word Performance Poet Community. And I've been part of that community since the mid-80s, and he's been part of it for years and years as well. And we did attend some National Poetry Slam championships at the same time. So I'll bet our paths crossed. So today, Asia is here and we're going to have a conversation and we'll see where it goes. So Asia, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So you and I share this common community, the Poetry Slam spoken word performance poetry community. Yeah. We've been involved in it for years. You've earned your living doing this for a long time. And over the years, I earned my living and still do a little bit approaching the world from a poetry performance spoken word point of view. So I would like for you to tell us as a successful spoken word artist, someone who broadcasts, someone who gets invited to go lots of places, how it all started. How did you learn about poetry in the first place? Did you just come out and cry and think, oh, that's my first poem? Or did you have a circuitous route into the arena? So oddly enough, I mean, I've always, so I moved to America from the Philippines back in 84. I remember uh, second grade, we had a book fair. I grew up in a very artistic family. My dad is an architect. My mom um, was in interior design and they had a studio where Everything was still hand-drawn. There was no computer, no CAD, none of that stuff. And I was always in their studio learning how to paint, learning how to use watercolors. And so at this book fair, I ran into Where the Sidewalk Ends by Shel Silverstein, a classic, classic book. And I was so drawn in by the drawings. I had no idea what poetry was. I mean, I was in second grade. I picked up Shel Silverstein's uh, Where the Sidewalk Ends and I fell in love with the words while looking at the pictures, like this is so funny and it was hilarious. And, and so I started writing poems, you know, here and there of my own. Then in sixth grade, I liked the girl and, uh, but she really didn't seem like she liked me very much. I was a skinny kid in junior high. Um, you know, I didn't have the muscles or anything like that. So I'm like, I'm going to write her a poem. And I wrote her a poem and made her like me. 
and I ended up becoming like my first girlfriend ever. And I'm like, oh, there's something to this poetry thing, right? Um, so I always was a writer, but I just never thought of it as anything more than just writing poems or short stories and um, ended up going to school for graphic design and videography, photography. So I was always into arts in general. But then 2004, I believe, HBO Deaf Poetry came on TV. And consequentially, that was the same year I got invited to like come to an open mic. A friend of mine was like, there's this open mic at the local college. Just go check it out. And I went to the local open mic and they were doing poetry. And, and then at the same time, and I brought a poem that I had written uh, that did pretty well. People were like, oh, that was cool. And then HBO Deaf Poetry was airing. And I got obsessed with that show. And I said, man, I hopefully one day I get to be on that show. It was just language being spoken in front of people just took on a whole different meaning for me, right? So I started writing a lot of poems. I met some people who were in, in slam. And, and so I started going to slams in 2004. And then in 2004, actually, is where I met Shihan Vankley from LA. He was a, a poet, awesome poet. But he was also helping cast for HBO Deaf Poetry. Two years later, I get a call from HBO um, wanting me to come perform. I went and performed. Also that same year, I fought testicular cancer. I did some local fundraising stuff. And while I was doing that, I met the guy who ended up becoming and who still is my manager today. He got me into the college market uh, through the Association for the Promotion of Campus Activities, which is APCA. And we booked so many shows that year. Um, so 2006, I feel like 2006 to 2010, for me at least, was like the golden age of poetry. Slams were insane. Um, you know, poetry was, you could write about anything. You don't have to worry about getting canceled. You didn't have to worry about getting hissed. If somebody didn't like your poems, they didn't like your poems. But you weren't getting hissed at on stage or you weren't being, you know, and I get it, right? Like I know nowadays, you know, there are things that people say that on stage that are very toxic, but I feel like nowadays people are just canceling you if they just don't agree with a view of yours. And, and I, and I it just put a bad taste in my mouth when it came to that type of thing. I don't, I can't remember the last time I've gone to a slam where I've heard a funny poem. That was his thing back then. I remember Team Normal from Chicago, they would, you know, they would do something and it would be hilarious. And I'm like, man, I miss poems like that. Two, that same year, colleges were also booking heyday of poetry. People, HBO Deaf Poetry was on TV, so colleges were booking like crazy. And so I started gigging and started going to college gigs. And to this day, actually, I, I'm still touring. Actually, I have a show on Friday and in the beginning of September, I have a whole tour um, through all of September. So I'm still here. <laughs> Deaf Poetry Jam was based out of New York, I believe. And right. uh, Most Deaf was the MC for a lot of those shows. I was at a couple of those shows. I didn't ever get on stage, but I did know a lot of people who mm -hmm. showed up. I, I think Taylor Molly, Patricia Taylor Molly, Smith. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. Uh, Roger Bonaire Gar, I yep. think Lynn Prokop was on. Yep. I could Poetry. go down the list. Um, oh, yeah. Poetry, uh, let's see, Mara de Valle, um, Shihan Van Cleef, uh, Sekou, all the old school guys that I remember growing up around, um, you know, learning poetry from. Uh, so many good guys. I don't know if you remember uh, Sekou and Steve Connell. They were well, awesome. I've had some contact with Sekou by way of a Zoom call, but I, you know, we crossed oh. paths. But he's a very, very successful producer in L.A. now, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's been doing some he's, stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You said that 
2006, 2004, six through eight or nine was the heyday of the poetry slam. And yet I am thinking of the days when I first discovered it. I first discovered the poetry slam in 1991. I was at in Natick, Massachusetts at an Uno's Pizza with a guy named Alan Wolf. And Alan Wolf uh, is yeah, the one. Alan. And yeah, Alan and I worked together in a group called Poetry Alive. We performed all over the country, classic poems in, from the school textbook. But this was in the 80s and the early 90s. So in 1991, we met a woman named Susan who was waiting tables at Uno's. And she said, if you guys want to really see some terrific performance poets, go to TT and the Bears in Natick, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow night, you can see Ray McNeese and Patricia Smith. And we went down there and the readers were pretty lousy, really, mm -hmm. except toward the end when Patricia and Ray came out. Ray came out first and he was absolutely stunning. Patricia mm -hmm. Smith, of course, of course still to yeah. this day is on top of the top of the world with her work. And after the show, we sat down with both Patricia and and with Ray, and we recruited them for the Poetry Alive project. Patricia couldn't join us because she was working for the Boston Globe, but Ray McNeese did join us. Kim Kim Lane at Poetry Alive. We had Danny Solis was there. Past Danny just oh, left yeah, the world that's, recently. That's uh, Ray McNeese, Pat Storm. Pat Storm was there. Pat Storm. That's and, the the name who we named uh, Storm Poets out of. Exactly. So. Yeah. We started the Poetry Slam in Asheville in 1991, and for a while, Asheville was the center of gravity, not only for the Southeast, but for many, many of the national yeah. poets. And our team, 195 nationals in Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm -hmm. I think it was Kim Holzer, Danny Solis, um, uh, Pat Storm, and Ted Baca, I think, were on those teams, yeah. that team. And you were right, Asia, back then. It was dramatically experimental. Very. And very. what you were describing as the heyday, what you, I think, maybe you're referencing where you started, what you experienced was the final few years of that longer heyday yes, that started correct. in the early 80s, 1984, when Mark Smith did the first poetry slam at the Get Me High Cafe right. underneath the bridge in Chicago and then moved it to of the Green Mill, Green where he Mill. still yeah. does it to this day. Yeah. We were in this dramatically experimental phase where I wouldn't say almost everything went, but my gosh, people could really push it. And I have to say that sometimes they really did. Even back then, I saw some people push it beyond anything that was acceptable. And, and right. fortunately, they did get shut down. But now I think it's different. I don't know. I run the Slam at the Leaf Festival and we do old school. The Slam at the Leaf Festival is the same slam we ran at the Green Door in Asheville in 1991 and 92. Mm -hmm. It hasn't changed. It's still got that old school vibe. So for you, your story tells me that you are doing many, many things in terms of your range as a performer. Can you talk yeah. about how you have developed your work. Have you plateaued? Do you rest on your laurels? Or do you push yourself beyond that to try to do more expanded work? And when I've watched your work, I know you're at the Deaf Poetry Jam level. It's a high level and you make your living doing it. How do you expand yourself after you get to that level? Or are you doing that? Actually, my early work 
sounded like a lot of the poets that I knew, um, you know, and after that, though, it, it became more of me, like it's a meshing of everything. And I stopped calling myself a poet, per se, I, I would rather consider myself a storyteller. I feel like I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. I love photography. I love videography still. And I love poetry still. But I also like stories. I like books. I like reading stories. Stories is what gets me every time, right? So nowadays, I might have an idea for a story. And I think to myself, all right, what is the best way to convey said story? Because not every story is meant to be a poem, right? Some stories are meant to be a photograph. Some stories are meant to be a video. At some point, I was trying to plan like a one-man show with my poetry, right? So I had that worked out. I found myself having a hard time struggling with it because it was a, such a huge scope of a project versus writing a poem. And I'm a very instant gratification kind of guy where a poem will take me five days and I'm like, oh, I could try this at my next slam, try this at the next college gig that I have and an instant gratification immediately. Meanwhile, a, a, a novel or a, a book of poetry or, or one man show us a bigger project. After a while, you have the oomph for that idea in the very beginning and then works never finish. It's just abandoned, right? That's the thing that we hear all the time it gets abandoned. And sometimes I go, I'll rifle through some stuff. I'm like, why didn't I ever finish this? This was pretty good. Before COVID, I actually went around the country and I interviewed 30 poets because 30 is the perfect slam score. Um, and I was trying to produce a documentary called Find a Poem. It's still here. It's still in my drive, the documentary, but it was like a two hour long documentary. And I'm like, this is not going to fly. It needs to be shorter. I need to tie it in a little bit better. And then COVID hit, the project got pushed. During COVID, I found a different kind of outlet. We started going outdoors a lot during COVID, right? Because we couldn't go anywhere else. And I, I found this thing called overlanding, which is um, basically car camping. It's modifying your vehicle to be able to go off-road and then camping while you're off-road. And I started a YouTube channel while I, during COVID. And then somehow or the other, that started picking up a lot of steam. And so now I've, I've enjoyed taking kind of the storytelling stuff and creating videos and then putting it on YouTube. And I've had such a great time with that. Poetry has taken a backseat to all of this, no pun intended. Still, I've been struggling lately to get my legs back as far as writing a new poem or, you know, doing anything poetry related. I get invited to slams too. And sometimes I just can't, I haven't found myself in that space where I don't feel like I'm a sharp as I was because slam is a whole different beast. It's, it's a competition thing. And when I'm at a college, I'm very relaxed. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to put together a one hour set. I'm having fun. I'm taking my time. Slam is a whole nother. It's a whole nother skill level. Three minutes. You better know how to punch it. You better know how to rile an audience up. You got to get the scores. And, and I was one hell of a slam poet. Like I won a ton of titles. And then once college gigs started coming, I started drifting more to that. And then I would watch one man shows from like John Leguizamo or things like that, 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 that really made me more enthusiastic about a one man show type of thing versus competing with words. Just for those of you listening, Asia and I are referencing the Poetry Slam. So just a quick note, Poetry Slam is competitive poetry judged like a diving match. 
The poets go on stage. They have three minutes to perform their poem. The judges, where do the judges come from? The judges come from the audience, arbitrarily chosen by the MCs and the house managers. Five judges, you ask them to score the poem zero to 10, like a diving match. You drop the high score and the low score, and you keep the middle three. And when you add those middle three scores up, it comes somewhere between zero and 30. Sometimes a poet will get uh, five tens. That means it's an automatic 30 because you drop the high, you drop the low, you, you still have 30. So that is what a poetry slam is. And it there is a lot of pressure to really deliver it. And it does not encourage easygoing, slow, thoughtful storytelling. I can attest to that. Am I accurate here, Asia? Is that yeah, close? Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's competitive. And a lot of times people who aren't part of like the poetry scene will sometimes slump performance poetry, like they'll go to an open mic and call it slam. But that's actually not slam. Slam is when there's an actual competition going on. You're getting scored and uh, by random people in the audience and, and had enough accolades as a performing poet and as a slam poet. And I tell a lot of the people whenever I mentor them that be careful of slam because you might be really proud of a poem and then you bring it on stage and let's say you get low scores, right? Anywhere else, you go to an open mic, you perform a poem. People will like it. People will clap, but you don't, there's no number attached to it. So you're kind of like, okay, they didn't clap as much. I need to tweak that maybe. Maybe I can get them. But sometimes if you bring a poem to slam, let's say some guy wants to give you like a five, you know, <laughs> out of a 10 and it can really hurt you. And you could be like, this poem sucks. I'm never doing this again. I'm like, but that could just be those random judges that you had there. But that doesn't mean the poem isn't good. It just wasn't, you know, not for that room. But a lot of times that can affect how you might see your own work. And that's what you have to be very careful about. So I now when I slam, I go in with that thought of, I'm going to write a poem that I'm going to perform at a college first. I'm going to write a poem that I perform because I love it. And if I can tweak it to work for slam, that's what I'm going to do. But I don't write this poem specifically just because I'm going to slam it. I, I don't do that. I don't write slam poems. I write poems that are usable for slam. You're absolutely right. I have seen many times a judge decide for whatever reasons, I'm, yeah. I'm going to score low. And it does really weigh on the, the performers. Think about this too. So we talked about what you said was in a slam, they drop the high score and they drop the low score. There are people who in, in the audience who are judges that kind of also want the attention. And so guess what? Every single poet, doesn't matter who they are, they're going to give it a low score because they want to be the guy that when the host calls out, okay, let's go, let's, let's, let's yell out the scores from low to high. And then they'll, you know, 3.2 to like the first judge or whatever. And of course, everyone's booing and like, boo is a bad score, right? But guess what? That guy's reveling in it. There's, there's people that want to play the villain and that's who they are going to be. And, you know, they just want the attention on them and they'll score very, very low, right? And then just to just for spite or whatever it is, you know, and they really didn't even listen to the poem. I couldn't agree more. I've seen that more than once. On the other side, the term slam, as I understand it, comes from the grand slam in baseball. The idea is, can you connect so well emotionally with your piece, your spoken word piece in three minutes, connect so well that the audience you're performing for will have the same reaction that a big stadium audience would have if mm -hmm. their home team Bottom of the ninth, this is Casey at the bat, but Casey doesn't strike right. out. The bottom of the ninth, 
bases loaded. You need all four runs to win the World Series. Right. It's the last pitch, and bam, it's out of the park, and the home team wins, and right. the audience goes wild. That's a slam. Can you do that? And the answer is very seldom. Most people don't know that. Most people think it's, oh, I'm going to throw the other poet down on the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's where it, it came from. And I think when the slam emer emerged out of, of Chicago, Mark Smith and a whole bunch of experimental poets were there in the early mid 80s. Uh, I think that's where that that's where that name came from. That's Not 100 percent sure, but it changes the way you look at something. You can whisper. And I have seen people do this, whisper a poem. I mean, the best example of somebody that whispers and just completely stops a room is Ocean Vong. He never raises his voice, but when he speaks, it's like, whew. I don't think he's ever slammed, but I'll bet he would get high scores by whispering because uh, he's you know, so connected. Uh, Anis Mojgani is the same way. Anis can go into a, into a room, you know, do his poems that are just quietly spoken and people will go crazy about it. So that's the other thing too that I talk about. And because if you teach someone how to slam, a lot of times they're going to yell. They're going to, that's what we see slam poets doing. They're yelling everything. I'm like, no, you know, um, you can win with any poem. Uh, one, you just have to believe what you're saying. That's the number one cardinal rule, whether you're slamming or performing for uh, an audience. Engagement comes when you, when you look like you believe the poem, if you're performing a poem that doesn't look like even you believe it, no one is going to want to listen to you, right? No one's going to believe you. And connecting with the audience first is to show that you can connect, that you can connect with yourself, that you believe in what you're writing. And then the second thing is to control. It's all about control. And one of the things that I used to teach, you know, and this is a really old analogy from a guy like me. I'm like, you know, remember VCRs, you would... Fast forward, rewind, slow it down, speed it up and play it normal. Think of your poem and your performance the same way. Like some parts you speed up, some parts you get loud, some parts you get low. In cinematography, right? Like when you watch a movie or a show, they never stay on the same angle for very long, maybe five, 10 seconds at most, except for a coffee and cigarettes, which was basically just stayed the same angle for a while, um, but they tend to change angles quickly because that's the only way to keep you engaged. Fast paced commercials will change angles very, very quickly. Uh, it keeps you engaged. So same thing with poetry. If you're monotone the entire time and there's no inflection, looks like you're reading, you could possibly lose people. But even the ones who are quiet, you don't have to yell. It's more so how do you control your tempo so that you can slow down in some parts, speed up in some parts, raise your voice a little bit, bring it all the way down, create that kind of dynamic performance. Um, and that's how I've always done it. I like to quote Bruce Lee a lot. You know, he said emotional content, not anger. Remember that, it's, it's emotional content. You know, it's about having emotion. Emotion doesn't always equal anger. That's quite true. And when you change your emotional angle as you're presenting your poem, the sound naturally changes. Exactly. It's a lot easier said than done. I've been doing this for years and years. I'm as seasoned as anybody in the community. I still have a hard time with that. Trapped in my own little world of one tone thing. And it's, it's difficult that, to do. That's the only part that becomes the easiest and natural to me. Really? Everything else is tough. Like I can sit here writing and I'm just like, God, I can't. 
I'm, I've been on this one line, stuck on this one line for three days now. And I don't know how else to say it. Like that is the, my, that's my, my Achilles heel is I have a, a love hate relationship with writing. I have the idea in my head, but then putting the work in becomes tough, but the performance part and changing up the pitches and tones. That's the part that I have the easiest time with. Let me track that just a little bit. You left the Philippines when you were six. I'm assuming you were in Manila. Mm -hmm. Was that your, your home? You said your mother and your father were artists. Your father was an architect. Correct. He didn't by chance build Makati, did he? Um, no, he, so <laughs> he, did, he did residential homes. Actually, I went to school in Makati before I moved. I went to a, play, a school called uh, Kaleo San Agustin. Mm -hmm. uh, my father worked for Philippine Airlines and he was an architect for them. Like he would help build some of their buildings and the hangars and things like that. And then we moved to the United States and he started doing residential and he still does that now in, in Boca, Boca Raton, Florida. So here's my question. Do you think your parents as artists, as creatives, had anything to do with giving you the kind of confidence you have in order to connect emotionally because that emotional connection once it happens it feels so good mm, yeah. and yet it's such a vulnerable place to go did um, they help no, you with that i don't think so because my parents um my father and my mother they were not the type of people that really that wore their heart on their sleeves right or didn't really divulge much they never really showed emotion like my dad would be very stoic when i was growing up yeah not now my parents now they, they're more emotional than i am but when i was growing up it was a whole asian parent mentality thing where every you know you don't show your emotion to your kids you don't show them your vulnerability i think i learned how to be more emotionally connected be and and i remember too growing up my dad used to say to me you're so sensitive so i i don't know maybe it was just something i grew up with um, but he used to get mad at me for being too sensitive, whatever that might mean. Um, and I hated it. I don't say that to my kid now. Like, I don't tell him, don't be so sensitive. I don't like to say that. But being emotionally connected, I think, came from my love for, for stories. Like, I would read a lot of books. I would watch a lot of movies. And I would be drawn to certain movies that other kids weren't drawn to. Um, you know, things that really moved me. Um, and so I always got into that. And I think that's what... Like I said, storytelling has been something that I've always loved. My parents never were storytellers. I just really loved story. I had my first experience with onstage spoken word at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee in 1981. So I am coming from that same tradition of storytelling, and poetry just happens to be one category. Speaking of storytelling, I'm wondering if you might favor us with uh, a piece, something that you could offer us oh, so we could get a sense of, <laughs> of your, of your style. I didn't realize I'd be doing a poem today. Um, oh, why not? You know, what's funny is that, okay, I'm going to say this it's, it's maybe it's good. I do this because I'm like very rusty right now because it's summer. Um, and I haven't toured since, uh, May. So usually during summer, I don't, I mean, I'll go to open mics here and there. I haven't really performed a poem. Let's do this one every year. There are 130 million babies and 150 billion stars born in the entire known universe. In a span of nine years, my wife and I had three known miscarriages. All that to say, we spent a lot of time floating in the empty void of space, wondering why the numbers never stacked in our favor. 
When we finally caught the comet, the geneticist saw the hundred tiny birthmarks that freckled my son's entire body and told us this was a symptom of neurofibromatosis, a rare genetic condition that can cause benign tumors to grow in the brain, spinal cord, and nerves. At its worst, so many tumors can grow, it can sag his skin and make his face look like it's melting, and I'm wondering, how will I handle the tumors if they come? If I can't even stand to look at the birthmarks that are already there, fast forward four years. It's his first day of school and he's throwing a tantrum because I'm making him wear a hoodie in this 90 degree weather, but I can't tell him I'm trying to hide the spots. It's just I know too well people's tendency to be cruel, how they like to chop down trees just to make more handles to mount their axe, and I won't let him get whittled down by sharp tongues like that, watching them take from him and turn him into something that he's not until he slowly becomes the weapon that's turning on himself. I know too well that kind of self-hate, but right now I'm just doing my best to control the fate of what's meant to be come of my son so please just put this hoodie on because you can't yet see your birthmarks for what they truly are but just then while standing there naked he held up his arms and said daddy they look like stars then pointing to the biggest one on his ribs he said daddy this one looks like a spaceship so forgive me for failing to compose myself when he started making up stories of the spaceship flying through his galaxy that is his body have we forgotten how much energy it takes to create a planet have we forgotten about the black hole that can suck the life out of an empty womb have i forgotten about the empty space that was left behind after the first time i dismantled the unused crib in our bedroom how dare me think i know more about this universe than you do how dare me forget all the stars that fizzled out before you came shining through you were born you are here riddled with spots as proof you exist it's why they call them birthmarks to begin with so how lucky are we that you have more than most miracle boy i know one day you might want to eclipse yourself into that hoodie to hide behind the moon as they stare and point we'll let them stare and point the same way they stare and point at stars in wonder and awe remind them there are merely specks of dust in the vastness of your presence and when the bullies come with their meteor shower of insults aiming to hit you at your core, swing your Milky Way arms to the bridge of their nose so they will always know, so they will always know that you are the big bang your mother and I have been waiting for, you walking constellation, you light speed traveler, you rocket of hope. I've gone on with this metaphor for too long, I know, but every year there are roughly 130 million babies and 150 billion stars born in the entire known universe. All that to say, no matter how worse your condition becomes, we will always love you until infinity. You are our son, our one in 150 billion. What's rusty about that? I don't know. I, yeah, I, in my head, it's like, I'm going to mess this up in just a little bit. <laughs> Talk about why writing is a challenge for you. Clearly, that piece, beautifully constructed has range, angles changed, up in space, down to the baby, back to the dad, around mm -hmm. to the mom, off to school, the hoodie, the, the whole celebration, and then back to space with, the, with all the mm -hmm. stars. Angles changing all the time. What is it, why do you think you hesitate a bit with your writing? What's going on there? I remember one time, uh, I don't know if you know 13 of Nazareth. He's a poet out of Virginia, an amazing writer. And good friend of mine, and I remember having a conversation with him a long time ago when I was struggling with writing. He said, well, to put it this way, you can no longer suck again. Like you could suck in the beginning and you could still suck 10 years from now. 
but you're going to be at least a little bit better than when you started off sucking, right? So you can never go backwards. So you can always only go forward. And that made a lot of sense. When they asked Andy Warhol, what's his favorite piece of his? And his response to it was my next one. There is this pressure sometimes. I've done so many great poems that I feel like has won slams and made it on button poetry and on deaf poetry and things like that. And now there is a higher kind of level of expectation that I put on myself that I shouldn't. That's when it becomes not as fun as it used to be. And that's what happens with creative with creatives a lot. We get taste of some success or whatever, and, and suddenly the expectations go way up. You got to beat your next one. When in the beginning, learning the thing was just fun. Learning how to paint for the first time is fun. Learning how to carve wood for the first time is fun. Learning how to write a slam poem for the first time is fun. And you have all these ideas, all these ideas. Like I remember just writing, didn't matter what it was that came to my mind, I would write about it. It was fun. And then at some point you become more selective in what you're writing. You become selective at, is this a good idea? Is this good enough to execute? You can have the best idea in the world, but if execution is poor, you're going to fail at the idea. Kind of like any business too. Like you can have the best idea for a product, but if you don't do the right thing and getting it launched out there and it just dies out, you could have had the best idea that just fell apart because of bad execution. So it's all about execution. And so that's where I get hung up now. I have all these ideas still. I have great ideas still that I think is just worth writing about. However, I'm having a hard time because part of me is... Um, having a lot higher expectations that I feel like I'm not going to be able to execute that idea as good as I think I can. So that's where I'm at with it. Where do you think that comes from? Because if you inventory the work you've done, it works. Where do you think that I don't know. it comes from? I don't know. I don't know. I think I can sit down and write a poem tonight and feel like that was good. And for anyone who is getting into poetry and may not be as seasoned, I guess, whatever that might mean. It might take them a long time to get to that level of where they can write it like that. But for me, I'm like, I don't know. I, I might not believe in it. And like I said before, you have to be able to perform something like you believe in it. So I, I need to be able to write a poem that I believe in. Here's a poem that I've been mulling about that I, an idea came to me the other day. And I've been trying to figure out how I want to tell this particular story in poem format. And I just have to workshop it out because I want to kind of write a new poem for this upcoming tour that I want to, that I want to add a new poem to my arsenal that I tour with. I just haven't figured out how I'm going to write it. I have been in this community for a long time. I didn't really start writing poetry until I was 41. I got an MFA when I was in my early 50s. I did start performing poetry when I was in my early 30s. Mm. And for a long time, I experienced what you were describing. I thought, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I did okay. I got the MFA. Uh, it was really stiff. It being me doing what I did on the page, delivery, delivering it. I was pretty good on the stage. I could just rattle along, no problem at all. Somewhere along the way, I decided... I'm not going to identify as a, as a poet. You said that already. I thought, I, I'm really a person interested in language and the way people communicate. And poetry is just one part of it. 
And I also came around to thinking that the mess, those really messy things that we do that we don't think have done anything that, that deserve the accolades that a poem could achieve, that's where the, the currency is. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the juice. Mm-hmm. And I somehow freed myself a bit from, or not, I mean, quite a bit from having that burden that you were talking about now. But I freed myself by just letting my imagination storm. And I have a project called the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. And the whole idea behind it is let your imagination storm, swirl, spin like a kaleidoscope, create collage, write for 10 minutes, and then you you will have one phrase that works. The rest you can use later. And the more I've done that, the more I've started to look at this generative work of poetry, not as poetry, it's just generative language that sometimes takes the form of a poem. So it lets me down from the from the aspiring vibe yeah, the toward the pedestal, people. and yeah, I'm going to yeah, just yeah. get down yeah. here and write. And it's yeah. really interesting how that, um, how that frees me up. Listen, I, one of the things that I, I teach in some of my workshop is harnessing creativity, that anyone can harness creativity at any given time couple of things that kind of is the backbone of that one being that there's no such thing as writer's block or creative block because really you can harness the creativity when you want to like one thing you do is you create an environment by which you can be creative right you have to figure out like for example me i can't write until everything's clean otherwise i'm typing and i see a mess and it just drives me nuts right I can't listen. I can't write when I'm listening to music. Some people love that. I can't. I need the quiet. Now, I don't I don't say this to people for them to do it. But one of the things I used to do is, you know, write when you're drunk, edit when you're sober type of thing, (laughs) you know, and I would just let it go. Let just let it flow and just do that. Right. And I and I teach people all the time just start writing and put the work in. But harnessing creativity, I've never had a problem with it. Like any yeah. in any given day, I, a project that I have, if I am excited about it, I will find the creative juice for it. Um, I don't know why the po- poetry hasn't given me the like, oh my God, I got to write this like right now. Well, I we can't. don't have to have that. That's not a requirement for being creative. I mean, sometimes you write poetry, sometimes you don't. Right. I think creativity is something you're born with. It's a, a gift that's abundant. We have more than we know what to do with. And all of these conversations we have are, are about organization. How are we going to organize this? I agree with you. I don't think writer's block exists in the way that people use it Correct. and describe it in this culture. It's a, an invention that the poets came up with years ago to like excuse themselves because they wanted to go down to the bar and drink beer and hang out rather than to write. And yet you are describing some kind of ceiling that you're bumping up against that seems to be real. That's it. So it's not a block per se. Creativity is also a muscle. Like you have to work it out, right? Like you have, if you want to write good poems, you got to be writing a lot in order to like kind of get into that mode. It's so it's kind of like going to the gym where, you know, you got to go to the gym, you know, you got to put the workout in, but to do that, Twyla Tharp mentions it very well in her book, Creative Habit, right? She said, the problem isn't you going to the gym. That's not the problem. The problem isn't you not wanting to go to the gym or not having the energy for the gym. The The problem starts when you don't want to put your shoes on. That's where it is. So that's where it starts. So it's not so much, I don't want to write. 
okay, if I got to go to the gym, if I really want to go, the first thing I got to do, I realize is put your gym clothes on, get in your car. Because once you're there, you're already committed and you're going to go. But then when you get to the gym, when I get to the gym, I'm like, oh man, I needed this today. But yet getting there. So I know that if I were to write this poem, that I, this idea that I have right now, once I'm in, in the thick of it and I'm writing it and I finish it, I know that I'm going to look at it excitedly ready to perform it at the next whatever show I have and test it out, right? I know it. I know I'll be excited like, oh, I have this new poem. I can't wait to share it. How do I get to let's start typing words on paper? A lot of people I know are quite advanced in their work. A lot of people I know, I work with a lot of people. I have a Saturday morning gathering on Zoom at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. It's a free writing workshop. We have 30 people. Some of the people are very seasoned writers and other people, adults, are just, just beginning. The seasoned people that I know, the musicians who play all the time, the poets like you who earn their living, they do arrive at a place, and that place isn't really a ceiling. But there's something dynamic just past it. Do yeah. you think that this hesitation that you have to write may be a feel sign saying, okay, Asia, you've carried this quite far. You're 45 years old. Okay, my friend, now it's time to begin. What you may be feeling is a little excitement, maybe some trepidation. Because you might sense in your intuitive core that something is about to happen. And even though you've been serious up to this point, this may be something completely new and completely different because you have so much skill. You know, I've talked to people before, too, and I'm like, you know, sometimes people are afraid of failure, but they don't recognize that they're afraid of success. It's a huge thing. They don't want to go further because they're not afraid of the failure part of it. They're afraid of what to do if they become, if they actually get what they want. I used to chase these things when I was younger, right? Like success and blowing up, whatever, going viral, whatever that might mean. I used to care about that. You know, then my son was born and not really chasing that much, that much anymore, you know, and I still love the art form. I still love whatever, but I don't know if it's also part of it is, man, the people who are in it now who are still slamming and are doing well, that it's their time. Like, I don't know how much else I have left to contribute to this art form, or maybe what I, whatever I say might already just be too outdated. I don't know. I don't think that that's it because I think that I can still relate. And I think I can still write some poems that knock people off their feet. I'm having a hard time getting my creative muscles to just get going with it. But I will say this is the first kind of poetry thing this podcast that I've done in a long time as far as outside of work, right? Like outside of touring, outside of whatever, this is the first time that, I, you know, cause I haven't gone to Southern Fried either and since before COVID, right? right? So 2019 was the last Southern Fried. We performed for at Southern Fried during COVID. Um, we competed then virtually, but then I haven't, I didn't go in 21, 22 or 23, right? I haven't been around the poetry community. I've just been around, my agents and in the colleges that are bringing me who a lot of these kids don't even know what spoken word is anyway. So I haven't been around that. So this podcast is the first time that I'm actually like doing a community thing. And it's kind of helping in a way where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm kind of remembering why I love 
poetry and why I like writing it. I don't know, maybe tonight, um, since I have pretty zero projects because I cleared out my night for this thing. After this, I might, you know, after the kid goes to bed, he's going to school, first aid of school tomorrow. And um, maybe I might go and bring this laptop downstairs where it's quiet and sit there and see what comes out and see if I can put this poem together and, and, and get some kind of enthusiasm. Well, I don't know. Well, I appreciate that you have that enthusiasm right now for this. And I am glad that you recognize the value, as I recognize the value of why we do this. We do this so we can have a conversation like this. You and I don't know each other except here, really. Now we know each other. I feel much better. We're still, though, in the same community, and anybody can join it. And that's what I've always liked about the the performance, poetry, spoken word, storytelling community. The door's always open. The screen porch is always there. We can always sit on it. And we don't have to commercialize it, nor do we really have to compare ourselves to anything, anybody, except maybe we compare ourselves to the joy we feel when we relax and tell our stories. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I think that's what I need to remember the most that I love storytelling. And, um, and if I can remember just that, just telling the story, then that'll help me versus me trying to meet some sort of absurd expectation of what my poems should look like. Just tell the story as it is, you know, um, I have, I have every poet should have like five people that they trust more than anyone. And when I say that, not people who are going to just pat you on the back. Awesome poem. No, I mean, like people who will really tell you like that one was good. This one was okay. Or this, you need, you could work on this a little bit. And I have like a, a handful of those people like that. I really, really trust with the work. I remember in a conversation one time, someone said to me, one of them said to me, goes, why are you, trying to make it more metaphorical than any, just say the damn thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's all you got to do is just say it, say the damn thing, whatever that is. It doesn't need to be metaphor. It doesn't need to be like flowery. Sometimes you just have to say the damn thing. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll share this. The idea of the poem is, so I was at a college conference. I don't know if you know anything about the way college markets go, but APCA and NACA are conferences where we go and we perform in front of college buyers. Uh, we do a showcase for about 10 minutes. The schools get to see us perform and they like you. If they like you, they'll come to your booth and talk to you and you know maybe book you. I'm at the booth with my agency, the company that represents me at the college market, and they have other people in their roster as well. And one of those is my good friend, Michael Kent. Michael Kent is a magician. Um, he's been in the college market forever as well. In between students coming, we're always, you know, goofing around. And I was like, Michael, show me, show me a trick. Like right now, I just want to see a trick. And he does this trick. And I was like flabbergasted. But I'm like, how the hell did you do that? He goes, hey, this one's actually really easy. And I said, uh, that looks complicated because no it's it's actually a really easy trick i'm gonna do it for the next student just watch watch out for this and this is what i'm gonna do and he tells me the secret to the trick right he's like i don't care about sharing this secret because this is a simple trick that a lot of us magicians know right so it's not like it's anything dramatic or anything so you can you know you can see it learn it and you can perform it I'm like okay so he goes watch out for this and he tells me the secret and the students come 
and I'm watching his hands and I saw exactly what he did. Now I look over to the students, the students are just like, oh my God, this is crazy. But me, I was like that. But then after I knew the trick, it's not as shocking to me anymore. It, it didn't have that same luster anymore. It just kind of was like, oh, that's all you did? So I wanted to write this poem where a lot of times when it comes to poetry or when it comes to anything, in the, in the eyes of other people, we're creating this magical work and we're creating this thing. But that's only because they don't see the trick or the puppet strings that, you know, the, the, the illusion that we put out. So we, as the magicians of this thing, sometimes because we know our own trick, we don't know how to dazzle ourselves anymore. Like what we're producing seems to be, I don't think this is good enough in front of someone, like, for example, for you watching me perform a poem for the first time, you're like, that's an amazing poem. But because I know the intricacies of that particular poem now, it doesn't seem as magical to me anymore. And so the poem I wanted to write was about that. And But it, at the end, say that no matter, you know, what you've been through or what you think about yourself, you might not see it, but we are still dazzled by you and you're still magic. And that's kind of where I wanted to go with that poem. But now it's just kind of how do I tie in other ideas to that? It's been kind of marinating in my head. I've been trying to figure out how to write that particular poem about us still being magic, regardless of what we might, however we might see ourselves, or despite the fact that we already know the trick or whatever that is, it's still magic to other people. Well, we're close to our close. Yeah. On that note, perhaps magic is mystical. Perhaps magic is beyond us. Perhaps the unexplained, which is much more than what we can explain, is there for us. And that's what we call magic. And when we think of ourselves, and this is for everybody listening, all of us, when you, when you realize you have that capacity to practice life magic of just being present. The rest of it might just take care of itself. That's right. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Definitely a good way to look at it. That might be whatever it is that anchors this poem at some point. I think that's what it is. It needs an anchor. Once yeah. I need, once I know the anchor, I can paint a, I can paint a whole story around it. Yeah. And because you're a magician, it will be magical because I am a magician. Anybody who moves in the direction of some artistic urgency, there's a certain magic. It's a certain beauty. Yeah. It's a certain rhythm that synchronizes with the heartbeat of everything around us. And, and, and doing poetry is magic. You're literally making pe pointing people's eyes to what it is you want them to see. And it, it becomes like that when you're performing a poem, I want you to look here. I want you to look there look here. I'm not pointing. I'm not pointing to you where my transitions are or how I jump from one thought to the next. I'm not, I'm not pointing out metaphor to you. I am just showing you and then you are going to go from there. And that's what I need to remember is how to just learn to direct the people's eyes and, and go from there. Asia, that's a great place to stop. I really appreciate you being on this show. Before you go, give us your website so people can find you. So yeah, theasiaproject.com. Um, that's the Asia Project. 
Um, don't go to the Asian project. That's a website that sells bowls and noodles. That is not me. Uh, but the Asia project is also my Instagram handle, uh, YouTube handle. Um, everything's under the Asia project. In fact, uh, you can also go to Spotify and look up the Asia project. You'll see the albums that I've done. The latest one is called Touch or the most latest one is old now, but um, that's an album that me and my brother-in-law, he used to tour with me. It's why we were called the Asia Project because he would do the guitar and I would do the poems over it. He's an awesome dude. Uh, we don't tour together anymore because he lives in Tennessee now, but we, we, we put together albums uh, for a long time and that's the one I'm most proud of. So go on Spotify and take a listen. Uh, I think it's a... Uh, those are my favorite, my favorite work that I'm, you know, that I think that was the last album I did, but um, yeah. So you look for the Asia project. We're pretty much kind of everywhere um, for that type of stuff. So you'll find it easily. My friend, thank you so much. Thanks James. That this is, this was fun. I, I actually needed this more than I, I, I thought I would need it, but I'm glad. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Asia Sampson. As you can tell, Asia and I have a lot in common, even though we've never shared the stage. We both understand how the spoken word community functions and our, our place in it. Speaking of place, I'm finishing this show in a coffee shop called Malongo in Paris. I'm visiting and editing and working I can take my work anywhere, so I'm having a very nice time. As I said, I'm visiting, and I'm visiting a friend of mine, John Van Hassel, whom I've known for many years. So I have just a slight bit of time left before we say goodbye. So as a sorbet for the show, I'd like to give you a poem that I just finished recording with Steve Rush in Denver for my audiobook, 100 Days Poems After Cancer. So here's just one little poem from that audiobook, and then after that, we'll say goodbye. 22. In Remembrance of Me I jotted a few notes this morning in a small coffee shop in downtown Asheville while the bells from the Basilica of St. Lawrence, constructed in 1905 by the Spanish architect Rafael Gustavino, my grandfather, not an architect, built the steeple that still holds the swinging cast metal bell above the vestibule at Sardis Methodist Church, where the rope attached to the clapper dangles through the ceiling for the deacons to ring. Once, kneeling for communion while Preacher Dawkins said, Eat this in remembrance of me, I fainted on the red carpet in front of the whole congregation. After the service, I stood in the sun, pale, modest, collar open, tie undone. Here's your question. Can you list the most embarrassing moments when you were a teenager? So I hope you enjoyed that little poem. I am particularly curious about the question at the end the most embarrassing moments when you were a teenager. Each one of the poems in that book that I audio recorded, 100 Days Poems After Cancer, has a question at the end of each poem. So 
I'm looking forward to getting that book fully finished and up online sometime in November. So, on that note, thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. And thank you, Dipping Dial, for managing WPVM FM. They're on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. I appreciate that. Robin Collier, thank you for airing this show and managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio in Taos. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. I'd love to hear from you. Also, just to remind you, this show is sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you have a little bit of writing you would like to do and would like to join our always open free workshop on Saturday morning, feel free to email me, nave at jamesnave.com, and I'll tell you how you can do that. So, thanks again for listening, being part of this show. I do appreciate it, and I hope you come back sometime soon. Till then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.